All right, if you got a Bible, turn to Psalm 15. And uh, we are in our journey through the Psalms this summer. And uh, really excited about Psalm 15. It's kind of one of those psalms not, not a lot of people talk about. It's kind of hard to understand. But once we get it in context, I think it'll really have a powerful uh, meaning uh, in, in, in what it says and uh, what it can do in our life. Um, we looked at Psalm 1. Saw an outline of our life. Uh, Psalm 3, saw how we're in trouble. We can call upon the name of the Lord today. Psalm 15. And as we gather this morning on Father's Day, uh, what a blessing from God for the gift of fathers. And fathers in the design of God for the family have a critical role in the spiritual development of the family. And many times, uh, Pastor uh, Homer Lindsay used to say, as the father goes, so goes the family. And so as uh, fathers have an important role that God has given them, and just like everything that God had designed and purposed uh, for uh, our lives and for, our, our, uh, for his kingdom, the devil attacks, right? I mean, the devil attacks and the devil wants to tear down and the devil wants to uh, destroy. And without question, fathers are on the top of that list. Like it's something that the devil's working overtime to destroy the family. I mean, there is a serious, strong attack on the family that God has designed um, for his kingdom. And in our culture today, um, the enemy does its best to cancel God's design. Like, don't use this design. Let's do this design. Let's replace it with this ungodly design. Well, the problem with that is God's design cannot be improved. God's design works best. God's design is the goal. God's design will never be canceled. And for us as Christians, we have the word of God as our standard. And as we desire to be all that God created us to be, it is a shame when we live less than what God created us to be. When we sell ourselves shorter, when we do not fulfill God's role and purpose for our life. And just as God has a purpose for fathers, he has a purpose for every Christian. God is a God of purpose. And as we have this purpose of God in our life, it should be our desire to do what God has called us to do. And isn't that a great God? That we're not overlooked, we're not insignificant, we're not an accident in God's creation and plan. He created us, but He also has a purpose for us. Like every single per, uh, person born and born again in God's kingdom can have a purpose and plan in God's plan. And, and, and for you and for me, as David comes to this psalm here, he challenges us with God's plan for our life. And, and here, when you read this here, you see that David wrote this psalm as an instruction psalm. There's imprecatory psalms where uh, David brings the house down on his enemies and really talks about the enemies of God. There are psalms of, of, of wisdom where he gives us great wisdom. There are psalms of instruction. And this is what this is. This is instruction of how to live your life for God and how God can work in his power and presence in your life. And, and David was described as a man after God's own heart. Now, if I died and someone described me as a man after God's own heart, I would have known I've lived a well life, right? I mean, what a description. Like, if you wanted to be something to be known by, what a description to know that David was known as a man after God's own heart. David knew God, and God knew David. David had a real relationship with God. And it begs the question, do you have a relationship with God? I'm not talking about religion. You come to church this morning or you may claim a religion. I'm not talking about a system of rules or a system of morality. I'm talking about a real understanding and a meaning of who God is and who he is in your life. 
Before we consider this psalm we, about fellowship, we must first understand relationship. Relationship with God comes first. It's the relationship and then the fellowship. I mean, when you get married, you enter into a relationship. When you go home the next day with your wife to live the rest of your life, and every day that you come home, you are in fellowship with her. You have a permanent relationship, but then you have a fellowship every single day of living out that relationship that you have established. With God, it's the same way. When you have a relationship with God, that's permanent. And the fellowship of God is something that comes every single day. Every area of our life should be impacted by our relationship with God that affects our fellowship with God. And and when we talk about our relationship, we see David here has a relationship with God. In the Old Testament, it's kind of hard to see how they come to know Christ or come to know God. They look forward to the Messiah. But today, we look back to the Messiah. We look back to the work that Christ has done. We see that a relationship with God begins with confessing our sins and receiving or trusting in Jesus Christ. That's how it begins. And this morning, you don't need to do anything else other than confess your life to the Lord and to receive Jesus Christ if you've never had a relationship with God. If you don't have that understanding of who God is and what he has done for you in your life, then that's what you need. You need a relationship with God that comes through salvation through Jesus Christ. One pastor said it's like Jesus Christ takes a sinful man's hand and a holy God's hand and he puts them together in relationship forever through the cross of Jesus Christ. I love that picture. Because that's what happens. We know we have sinned. We know we have missed the mark. But through Jesus Christ, He takes us and puts us into relationship with this God. And once we have that relationship, then we have to live it out. That's what I call fellowship. Fellowship is living out the relationship of God that's in your heart. Uh, and, and, And you know, it's available to you to have God's presence and power in your life. In your marriage, you can have the presence and power of God in your marriage now. In your, in your parenting, you can have the presence and power of God in your parenting. When you have the fellowship with God, you get the presence and power of God in your life to do what God has called you to do. Have you experienced the presence of power and presence and power of God in your life? I most certainly have. God has done things through me and in me that I could never do of my own. I, I have to pinch myself every single Sunday to think that I'm the preacher. Like, I have to stand up here and talk to people. I have to stand up here and write sermons. I have to stand up here and have people understand or evaluate my poor English or my poor speaking skills. Because if I was in high school, I did not like to speak. I'm not an outgoing person. I do not enjoy uh, speaking to groups of people. And God, in his sense of humor, that's exactly what he called me to do, right? And so I know it's not me. I pray every single day, every single week, God, use me. I need your power and presence in my life to do something in me that you created me to do. You have a purpose for me and a plan for me. Do something in me that I can't do of myself. And we have to be filled with that power and presence to do do that. David was certainly that way. I mean, didn't you think about it? David was a nobody, I mean, David's family was the least of the land, and David was the least of the family that he was in. I mean, literally, they lined up all the sons, and they said, is this the man of God? And is this the man of God? As the prophet was there, and he said, no, no, no. And he's like, well, God made a mistake. It must not be in our family. And, and the prophet said, surely you got someone else. And he goes, well, we got one little shepherd boy, a ruddy boy named David that's out in the fields uh, shepherding. Surely God could not be talking about David. 
Well, sure enough, God called David, and David was the least of his own family. He was no pedigree, no talent, and yet God had a purpose for David. God had a plan for David. And when God got a hold of David's heart, God did something through his presence and power in David's life that's, that's unbelievable. You see, David knew without God in his life and his power and presence, he was a zero. But with God's power and presence in his life, he was a hero. I mean, we see that clearly with David and Goliath, right? David goes before Goliath and he says, you're just a shepherd boy. You have nothing compared to who I am. And David says, you're just a, you're just a giant before me, but before God, you're nothing. And I come at you in the power and the presence of God. And he defeated Goliath. He was filled with the power of God and he was a hero. But then we read the story of Bathsheba. David was not in fellowship with God. David did not have the power of presence of God in his life. And guess what happened? He became an adulterer and he became all this shame came on his life because he did it on his own. He was a zero. He, he had, did not have the presence of God, power of God. He was a zero. And so in our life, that's the question we got to ask. Do we want to be a zero or do we want to be a hero? Like, do we want to be filled with power, the power and presence of God in our life? Or do we want to do it our own way? And God wants us and desires us to be empowered by him to fulfill his purpose. And I hope that's your desire. Because we need fathers like that. We need men like that. We need women like that. We need those who want to be filled with the power and presence of God in this world. And Psalm 15 begins with that declaration. David writes this in Psalm 1, in verse 1. He says, Lord, may, uh, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Basically, David is saying two things. He's saying, he's pleading to the Lord. God, who can abide and who can dwell? Important words there. They're not just, uh, they're not just uh, uh, words that are a, a blow-by or a stand-by. He's appealing to God saying, God, I've done it my way and I've seen the results and I've done it your way and I've seen your results, but I want a desire to do that all the time. Like, I don't want to be on again and off again. I don't want to be filled with your presence and not filled with your presence. I want every single day. Like, how do I abide in that? How, how do I dwell in your presence every single day? So not just moments of my life, but every day I'm filled with your power and presence in my life. David desires that fellowship with God's power and presence permanently. He says, I don't want just weekend visitations, God. I want full-time custody, right? Like, I don't just want to be a saint on Sunday. I want to be a saint on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday too, right? I, I want it every day of my life. I want to abide and dwell in that. And David's asking God, how does that happen? I want you to empower me every day. What a desire. You know, have you experienced the difference of living in God's presence of power and not living in presence in power? I have. I suppose uh, there's nothing more humbling for a man than becoming a father, right? I mean, as a father, being a dad is not easy, right? I mean, it's a challenge. It challenges your, uh, it challenges your love. It challenges your patience. Now, that one's tough for me, right? Like It challenges your patience with your children, with your family. It challenges your generosity. It challenges your sanity. And sometimes it stretches you to the end and you think, I can't do it anymore. And in our own power and strength, we can't. And that's when we lose it. That's when we fall short. That's when we fail. Certainly, many times I have failed. I have made my own mistakes. You know, I get to talk a lot about my kids and get to tell a lot of stories. Matter of fact, so much so that during the week when someone does something, they always say, oh, dad's going to use that one on Sunday. You know, 
But I could stand up here today and tell you they have plenty of stories they could tell about me. Plenty of not so great moments of dad at home. Plenty of times when I was not filled in the presence of power of God, when I was living my own power and strength and did something I shouldn't be doing or saying something. Or, but, but, but there have been times when I've gotten it right. I mean, there has been times when I've allowed God to use me and I've allowed God to do what God's called me to do. And you know what? It's awesome. I mean, there's nothing like being a father leading your family and seeing God work in their life. There's nothing like being a coworker with someone and seeing God use you to bring them to the Lord. There's nothing like coming to church and serving in a children's ministry and seeing God save the kids. There's nothing like that. To know that you're used by God and the power and presence of God in your life, it's awesome. And David's saying, it's so awesome with you, Lord. I want that every day of my life. How do I dwell that way? How do I abide that way? How can I have that in my life? Well, good news, because David answers that question. This Psalm of Instruction. In verses 2 through 5, he gives us the clues. He gives us the answer of how to dwell or abide in the power and presence of God in our life. Verse 2, he says this, He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he who honors those who fear the Lord, but he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, who nor does he take a bribe against, a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved." I mean, so much instruction here. We could spend hours talking about it, but I really want to focus on verse 2. Verse 2 gives us three pillars, and out of those pillars, David builds the rest of the Psalms, and we'll talk a little bit about the rest of them, but majority of the time, I want to talk about uh, verse 2. In verse 2, the first pillar he gives us is a man of uprightness. Uh, He who walks uprightly. He who walks uprightly. Now, some of us immediately think this means like some Christians that we know, right? That you got to walk around with your nose up in the air and it's so high that if it rained, you would drown, right? Like walk around like you're superior to everyone else. Oh, look at me. I'm so holy and you are so unholy, right? Or, or like as a father to walk around and tell your kids like you got it all wrong and I got it all right. And arrogantly, we look at everyone. And that, that's not what this verse means. To walk uprightly is not to be arrogant not to be brash, not to be one to put other people down, but it also doesn't mean on the opposite side to be so pitiful, milk toast, weak Christian that you don't have any standards or convictions in your life, right? It's not walking around with your head hung low all the time saying, it's my fault, I'm so defeated, I love to call it the martyr syndrome, right? Everyone's picking on me, I can't make it in my world, it's so hard, it's so tough. You know, those kind of people can brighten up a room by leaving it, right? I mean, they're, they're like, man, get away from me because I'm already having enough time. And the worst thing you could do is ask these people how they're doing because they give you their medical chart for the last 15 years, right? Like, oh, pastor, I got this mole on my back. You want to see it? Like, no, really, I don't. But anyway, they, they tell you it's always gloom and doom and always pity. That's not what walking uprightly is. Walking uprightly means you have convictions. Walking uprightly means you have a backbone. Do you know how you walk uprightly? You have a backbone. You have convictions that you believe. You believe them and you don't compromise them. You believe convictions from God's word and you believe them and you set your life by them. You walk them out in your life. You say, what are convictions, pastor? Well, convictions are beliefs that you, that you, that you will die for. They're not preferences. 
They're not what you like and what you dislike because they may come and go. And you know, in your life, you realize you have certain things you like and dislike and, they, and it changes. You know, preferences come and go. Likes come and go. Uh, dislikes come and go. Convictions are permanent. Convictions are solid. Convictions are what you put the first day that you are a Christian to the last day you're a Christian. And convictions are worth fighting for and dying for. I mean, how important are convictions? Very important. Because what you believe affects how you behave. What you believe affects how you're going to guide your life. And convictions in this world, if you don't have them, this world will have you. This world is squeezing you into a mold. This world, I think we could all agree, look to the commercials, look to every email you may get, look to every sign of a rainbow or every sign of a, a molding of this world to think that this is the way it's supposed to be done. And if you don't have a conviction of God's Word, you'll never stand. And convictions are something that you say, this is important in my life. This is the God's word and, and, I, and it's worth dying for. And we must be a man of conviction if we want God's presence and power in our life. We, we live in a world that thrives on feelings and emotions, right? And lust and desires. That's what it's all about. But you know what? That's terrible to, live, to, to, to build your life around. They'll go up and they'll go down. They'll come and they'll go. And the way of the world is like one of those lizards that changes colors in whatever environment it's in, right? I mean, like if it's in one environment, it's one way. When it's another environment, it's another way. That's the way Christians think they got to be. Hey, if I'm in this environment, I got to do like they do. And I, certainly I couldn't tell them God's word. I couldn't live out my conviction in my family, my home, because people think I'm narrow-minded. Or people think I'm hateful. Or people think that I'm, I'm, something's wrong with me. Well, let me tell you, as a Christian, you got to have convictions. If you want God's power and presence in your life, you got to have things you live by and they're built in God's word. You got to walk uprightly. You got to have a conviction that you believe in God and you want to honor God with all you do. You got to have a conviction that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. You got to have a conviction that God's word is true. David gives a few convictions here just in passing in verse four. He says, in whose eyes the vile person is despised, but honor, uh, but he who honors the Lord uh, honors those who fear the Lord and he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What David is saying is upright man has good friends, upright, an upright man or upright person doesn't have people who love wickedness. If you have a friend that influences your life that loves wickedness more than God, you got a problem there. You got to have a conviction to say, whoever influences my life is going to lead me closer to God, not further away from God. If you have a marriage and you want to be God honoring in your marriage, don't have friends that don't honor God in their marriage because you're going to eventually end up not honoring God in your marriage. It's going to be tempting to the world. You got to have those convictions. You got to have convictions for your family and for your kids. You got to say, these are the convictions I have, and, and the, these people are not going to influence my life. And also, David says the conviction is one who commits to do something and he follows through with it, even though he don't like it. Now, that's a novel ideal in our world today, right? I mean, everybody wants to commit to something, but when the sacrifice comes, that's it. I'm out. This is not good for me. I know I told you I would do that, but I'm not going to do this. Many of you know Tanner, our son, he got a job at Ace Hardware, right? And go Ace Hardware, right? And go Tanner. And so if you need some mulch or bags of mulch, or anything, go up there and see him. He'll load them up in your car and uh, he'll take care of them. You can even give him a big tip because he needs gas money and money for tornadoes at the gate station. But anyways, uh, <laughs> he works at Ace Hardware. He come home, second day on the job. I said, how do you like the job? He said, I helped him close it. I said, yeah, uh, what did you do? He says, well, when you close, you have to clean the bathrooms. So, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty neat. And he's like, no, well, I guess. I was like, well, that's not part of just loading cars. It's cleaning the bathrooms. Well, when you sign up for a job and you commit to do something, you do what they ask you to do. That's part of your job. 
And if it's clean bathrooms, it's clean those things. Once you give your word, even though you don't like it, you need to be true to your word. You need to be one who stands by your convictions. And since it's Father's Day, I thought it'd be good to apply it to fathers for some convictions we should have. Do you have the conviction that you're the spiritual leader of your family? It's not your wife's job. It's not your family's job. It's your job. And you ought to have the conviction that I'm going to lead my family in the things of the Lord. You shouldn't have to be made to go to church. You should be the one bringing your family to church. You should be the one to say, this is my conviction. At the end of the day, this is my responsibility to be the spiritual leader. Do you believe you're the protector of your family? Listen, as a dad, I know this is tough because you want to be your kid's friends, but you're the protector of your family. And if they're doing something or saying something that's not of what God wants you to do, then it's your job to step up and be that protector. Hey, I'm going to tell you these things and you may not like me for it, but this is what God's called me to do. This is my conviction. This is my conviction to be the one to tell you that you're not going to do this because I'm convicted and my conviction is to be the protector of this family. Another conviction is to spend time with your family, quality time with your family. Listen, I know jobs and I know work and I know schedules that you got to keep, but there's free time that we have and it's not time to go hang out with your friends or your, or, or your buddies. It's time to spend time with your family, with your kids. Make sure you spend meaningful time with your kids. Be there for them during their football games or their basketball games or baseball games or for, for their dance nights or for their, their musicals because you're the dad and you got to take a conviction and say, whatever time that I have, I'm going to spend time with them because let me tell you why they grow up so fast. They grow up so quick. And before you know it, they're going to be gone and you're going to regret that time. You're going to go back to that time. Have a conviction. You spend time with your family. You spend meaningful time with them. You know, when I think of convictions, I think of Daniel in the Bible. You know, I love the story of Daniel. You know, the story of Daniel is God's people were in bondage and they were being exiled. And basically, they were going to reprogram all of God's people, all the Hebrews. And Daniel was young, and he had three friends, and they took him into this program. They were going to convert them to the ways of the world. You had to begin to uh, believe like the world, behave like the world, and take of the world things that the, the Babylonians are bringing them. And they brought Daniel before him, and they said, it's time for you to convert. And Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 says this. It says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a king's portions or delicacies or his God. Think about that. Daniel says, I don't care what the world says. I have a conviction in my heart. I have this purpose, this standard that I live by, and whatever may come, it will come, but I have a conviction that God has said it, and I has put this in my life, and I'm not going to bend, I'm not going to bow, and I'm not going to break. I mean, what an upright walk. I mean, that's what convictions look like. I mean, that's what convictions look like when it comes to your life, when it comes to our life, to not bow and not break. That's what this world needs. We need Christians who are not willing to bend or bow, who are not willing to live by the ways of the world, but have convictions. And fathers, we ought to lead the way. That's what we should be. We should lead the way. We should walk uprightly and have convictions by what we believe, and we walk by it. That's the first pillar. Second pillar is that he says he is one who works righteousness. This is hand-in-hand with convictions. So you believe it, but now you work righteousness. It's like the other side of a same coin. And it's one thing to have convictions. It's another thing to live them out, right? It's another thing to act on those things. It's, it's one thing to work righteousness and say you believe, but it's another thing to behave it. So not only what you believe, but what you behave, how you live that out, how you work righteousness. And I suppose this one is very important in our culture today, right? Because so many Christians have the talk. We like to talk the talk, but we don't really walk the walk. 
And, and what people know about you and what they know about me, they appear to be Christian. We may be able to say all the words, but our actions tell otherwise. I was reminded of a story of a police officer that was witnessing a, a guy honking a horn and carrying on and uh, chewing out this lady. And uh, it was almost like a road rage incident. And so the man went flying around this lady because she didn't take off fast enough. So the officer decided to pull him over. And so he pulled the man over and he gets the man out, starts to arrest the man. He says, wait a minute. He goes, what are you arresting me for? I just got a little upset and may have yelled and screamed and hollered and maybe sent a little choice sign at this lady here. And he says, well, I'm arresting you because I'm arresting you for a grand theft auto. And he thought, grand theft auto, what in the world? You got this wrong, officer. And the officer said, there's no way because on the back of this van, it says real men love Jesus. And there's no way somebody who loves Jesus should be acting like that. And so I know you had to steal this van. <laughs> and he was like, this, and that's, that, is that not the way that we are though? Uh, so many times we love to post on Facebook how blessed we are. But yet on the next moment, we're living the way of the world. Or one moment, we're putting a, a, a sticker on our car. We're going to church and we go home and we don't do anything for God. And we're being hateful and mean to our family. If we want the presence of power of God in our life, we've got to believe it. But we also have to behave it. We have to put feet to our convictions. We've got to walk the walk. And as fathers, I know this is a great challenge for us because you're the spiritual leader of the home. And our actions will show more than what we say. If we tell our children they need to serve God, but we don't serve God ourselves, what does that tell our children? If we say you need to read your Bible, but we don't read our Bible, what does that say? If we say you're supposed to love one another, but we don't love one another, what does that say to them? If we tell them to, to love and respect their mother, but we don't love and respect their mother, what does that tell them? If we tell our children not to live the ways of the world, but we live the ways of the world, what does that tell them? And you know what I've learned throughout raising children I found to be so true? When I first started uh, out being a father and trying to raise children, someone told me this and I found out it's so true. He said that more things in your children will be caught than taught. And, and I think about that. In your life, your children watch you and they don't so much listen to what you say, they listen to what you do. And when you say it is one thing, but when you live it, it's a totally different thing. Not only what you say, but what you do. And what a story when you see all these uh, things around you and you see how do these things. David says, here's just a few things just to finish the rest of the Psalms here. And you can look at this later. David gives a couple examples. He says, nor gives evil to his neighbor. That means he's watching the actions of how you treat your neighbor. Nor does he put his money out to usury, meaning how you, how you spend your money and how you do business. And then nor takes a bribe against the innocent. Can you be bought? Can you be paid for a price? He's saying all these things, all these working out these things, working righteousness, believing and behaving. And if you want God's power and presence in your life, you got to do these righteous things. You, you can't be doing unrighteous things wanting God to bless your life. It's not going to happen. If you want God's power and presence, you got to work righteousness in your life. You say, all right, pastor, you got me on this one. I haven't been acting right. You know what? I've, been, I've made mistakes, and I know I haven't been believing what I say, and I know I've been a hypocrite in my own family. What should I do? Well, I'll give you three things. They're all ours. First thing to do is repent. You know, I know we don't like talking about personal responsibilities, and all our culture says, oh, don't talk about personal responsibility. Let me tell you, if you're not living for God and you're not in fellowship with Him, it's not your wife's fault. It's not your kid's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not anyone's fault. You know whose fault it is? It's your fault. And you got to take responsible for that. You got to say, I'm repenting. I'm trusting. I'm confessing. I don't want to blame my wife. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. 
I haven't been the father I should be. I haven't been doing the things I should be doing. And I just need to repent of it. I need to say, you know what? I don't want it anymore in my life, God. I need to change. I want to change. That's what repentance is. Second thing is to receive. This is my favorite part. Receive God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, when you turn to God, he never turns you away. I've been a Christian for most of my life, and every time I've went to God for forgiveness and I've repented of my sins, guess what's happened? He's given me forgiveness every single time. He's never pushed me away and said, no, I don't have time for it. No, you've already got your last straw. You've messed up too many times. No, every single time he has been faithful to forgive, and this morning you can start over, and God can, you can receive God's forgiveness. And the third thing is to return to do the things you know that you're supposed to be doing. Start reading your Bible again. Start leading your family again. Start serving at church again. Return to the works that you know please God. Repent, receive, and return. And you can get back on track in fellowship with God. Believe, behave. And then thirdly, the last pillar he gives is sincerity of heart. He says in the last part of verse 2 here, he says, he speaks truth in his heart. Now, a lot of people confuse this to say he speaks truth from his heart, but that's not what Scripture says. It says in his heart. And this one really shows the depth of David's understanding of his walk with God. This is one of those things to have convictions for your. It's one thing to have convictions. It's one thing to live them out, but it's a whole nother thing to have those desires to want to do those things. David is saying in his heart, his heart has been so changed by God that he wants to do these things. He wants to be the godly husband. He wants to have those convictions in his life. To live for God is not a punishment. It's not a system of rules. It is a blessing. And when you find that out, it changes your heart and you truly want to be the God's man in your family or you truly want to be the, the co-worker that God chooses in your life. You want to be that person because even your heart's desire before the Lord is to do what God has called you to do. This is not hide and seek from God. This is not a shell game of God. Here I am, there I'm not. This is your heart open to God and saying, God, here's my convictions. Here's my, here's my righteous work. Now here's my desires. Make me desire and want to know you in a sincere way without hypocrisy before the Lord. You know the depth of David when he did this in Psalm 139, 23. We're going to study this later on uh, through the scriptures. But he says this in this verse. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You know what David's saying? My heart is pure, Lord. And if there's anything impure in my heart that's going to lead me away from you, I'm surrendering it to you, God. Let even my desires be that of God. Not just your beliefs, not just your actions, but all my desires in my heart. Wow. No wonder why they called him a man after God's own heart, right? He says, God, search my heart. If there's anything in the desires of me to be not what you want me to be, take it away from me. I don't want that in my life. I want your desires, your beliefs. Your actions, your desires, they all belong to the Lord. And when we do that, God says that he will give us his presence and power in our life. That's what David says. Do you want to be a godly father? Do you want to live for God? Do you want to serve the Lord? Do you want a holy life? Do you want to be used by God? David says, when you want to be filled with this, even the desire should be sincere to the Lord. Like sincerely desire these things in your heart. Upright walk. Righteous actions and sincere desires of the heart. David says, you follow those things. And here's the promise, verse 5, the very last phrase of uh, line of verse 5. He 
who does these things shall never be moved. What a promise. He says, you do these things and you shall never be moved. You will abide and dwell in the power and presence of God in your life. Your marriage will have the power and presence of God. Your family will have the power and presence of God. Your service to the Lord will have its power and presence. You do this, you shall never be moved. Never. You know, building a life pleasing to God is not easy, especially in this world. It's not easy, and it's not the easy route or the quick route. We live in a society that wants everything right away, right? I mean, I want it, and I want it right away. I mean, we are willing to sacrifice uh, we're willing to sacrifice quickness with quality, right? Availability over quality. That's why we're so willing to go to fast food places, right? And instead of eating a meal that we know should be right for us, we, we go to a fast food restaurant. We do something because it's quick. It's easy. It's convenient. It's the, it's the easiest thing to do. Plus, McDonald's fries are good too anyways. But anyways, off the topic. But, but living for God is not like that. It takes commitment. It takes sacrifice, it's not the quick, uh, it's not the get rich quick scheme. It's not here, do this, and one day you're going to be the best father ever. No, the Bible says, it, the Bible never says it's easy, but it does say it's worth it. It does say if you want a life that's worthy, if you want a life that's never moved, if you want a life that's filled with the power and presence of God, here's what you do. It's not the short route, it is tough, it's going to take sacrifice, it's going to take time. And listen, I know as well as, I, as you, I get down and I get discouraged. And I look to this world and I think, God, I'm doing it the right way, but yet I'm suffering. Why, why in the world should I even keep doing this? Like, I see these other people prospering. You're tempted to take the shortcut. You're tempted not to race, to run the whole race. You know, when I was in high school, I was on the cross-country team. That's a joke, by the way. You guys could like, yeah, nobody's even listening to me anyway, anymore. I was on the cross-country team. I was on the football team, and we reported back from high school uh, from the summer break, and we report back to football camp. We had to run two miles under a certain time. I think for us, it was like eight minutes, two miles and eight minutes, something like that. That's another joke, by the way. It was like 14 minutes. But you had to run two miles in a certain distance because they didn't want you laying around all the time, and they would send us out, and you'd li- we would leave the greatest high school in this whole area, Nice High School, right? So you'd leave out at Nice High School. And they would, you would head out on Ray Road, and you'd take a right on Old Dixie Highway. And Old Dixie Highway was just a straight road. And it went up a little bit, and then it went down a little bit. And as, you, as we turned that corner with 100 degrees weather in the middle of summer, heat coming off the road, it seemed so far. I mean, it seemed like there is no way I'm even going to make it to the end, and there's no way I'm certainly not ever going to make it back. And so as we were uh, running this process and we were running down the road, I was in my mind thinking, there's no way I'm going to make it. One of my friends, we were the linemen, you know, the chubby little kids that claim we got asthma and all the other stuff, why we can't run very far. <laughs> no, it's just because we're fat and we couldn't make it. We're fat people don't run very far. But we're sitting there thinking, he says, you know what? We're never going to make it. And I was like, you're right. We're never going to make it. And yet I was trying to make it. I was trying my hardest. And I was thinking, man, I just got to keep struggling. I just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And he says, hey, listen, I got an idea. Why don't we just dip off into the woods? And we dip off into the woods. When they come back by, we'll just get right back in line with them. and look like, hey, we finished up and everybody, everybody finished on time. 
Amen. I thought, you know what? I was so tempted to do that. I was like, man, let me just dip off into the woods. Man, that sounds so much better because that stop sign is way down there and there's no way I'm going to make it back. So anyways, I was like, you know what? I'm not doing it. I'm just going to keep running. I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try my hardest and I'm going to do the best that I can. And so he dipped off into the woods. Sure enough, he went off into the woods and he acted like he was getting water and he was waiting there. And sure enough, we come back by and there he comes. He comes running right out behind us, you know? And here we were finishing up the race and we get to the end and yet we were standing there. It looked like everyone had finished. It looked like everyone had succeeded. But the coach could have stood up and he says, well, I walked over to Old Dixie Highway and I looked down the road and I saw one person dip off into the woods. And sure enough, he busted him. And he said, because you dipped off into the woods, he says, every single morning we're here for the rest of the camp. You're going to get up and run that two miles while I follow you on the golf cart all the way down and all the way back. And man, I was so glad I didn't cheat. (laughs) I was so glad I didn't dip off into the woods because it looked like he had succeeded. It looked like he had done what everyone else done. But guess what? He took a shortcut. And in the end, guess what? It cost him. Listen, the world is tempting. It looks like you're going to make it. It looks like what does it matter? What does it matter if I just dip off here? What does it matter? It's, it's, I'll, I'll receive the same or I'll be the same way. It'll pay off. But trust me, it doesn't pay off. It doesn't pay off because when you don't do it God's way, you don't have His fellowship. You don't have His power. You don't have His presence in your life. And if you try to live and you try to have a marriage that's not filled with the power and presence of God in this world, it's never going to make it. If you try to raise kids and be a father in this world without the presence and power of God in your life, you're not going to make it. If you try to serve the Lord and be a Christian and be on fire for the Lord and witness to your coworkers and do the right things without the power and presence of God in your life, you're not going to make it. You can't take shortcuts. It's not the short run. You be a person of convictions. You say, this is what I live my life by. And no matter what happens... No matter what comes my way, I'm standing on these convictions. You be a person of righteousness. You say, I'm not going to do the things of the world. I'm not going to cheat. I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to live out my faith. And you be a person of sincere desire. Say, Lord, make my heart pure before you. And I want your desires for my life. And more than making a million dollars or five million dollars or being popular or having all the things in this world, I want your power and presence in my life over all that. I want your purpose in my life. And I want these desires to be of you, Lord. And when you do that, when you do that, David says, you will never be moved. It's worth it. You realize before God in his kingdom, you realize it's worth it all. It's worth it to do what God has called you to do. And just what I ask you in the very beginning, do you want to be a hero or do you want to be a zero? Listen, if you want to be a zero, go your own way. If you want to be a hero, let God have his presence and power in your life and take on this life that God has given you and fulfill his purpose and see God work in a way in you and through you that you could never do on your own. And at the end of it all, you will never be moved. You won't be disappointed. Let's pray together this morning.